from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 31st. Today, the Hatch Act and why it matters, the charges against Steve Bannon, and remembering Chadwick Boseman. Hatch Act is a law that most people who don't work in government know little about. And it was passed by Congress in 1939 during the New Deal, and it was passed as an anti-corruption law that said politics could not be mixed with government employment. I'm Lisa Ryan, and I cover federal agencies for The Post. And so that law still applies to today, right? That basically it prevents people who work for the federal government to use their jobs as a form of political campaigning, correct? That's right. So it it's really got a lot of provisions that honestly are not the easiest to to sort through if you're a federal employee or even if you're just a, a reporter or a layperson. So basically it says that if you are a federal employee and it applies to, you know, civil servants, what we call career employees, as well as political appointees, which are, you know, the thousands of people who serve in any, in any administration. So it says that when you're on the job, you cannot get involved in any campaign activity, any activity that is viewed as promoting a candidate, promoting partisan politics. In effect, that means that if you're on the job during working hours on a work computer, you can't send an email or post something on social media that would basically show that you are trying to promote the candidacy of someone who is running for office. You can, on your own time, after work or on a weekend from your own computer, do those things, but you cannot do them in what is called your official capacity. Uh, you can just do them as a citizen. So why are there new questions and concerns about the Hatch Act right now? So I would say even in the Trump administration, there were concerns before the Republican National Convention last week because a number of high-level Trump appointees had run afoul of the act. This does happen in other administrations, there's no question. But in the case of the Trump appointees, they pretty much thumbed their nose at the law. So the Office of Special Counsel, which is this little independent agency that enforces the law and investigates potential violations, had found that a number of Trump appointees, probably the most visible was Kelly Ann Conway, White House counselor who who left just a few days ago, that she violated the act. So th- there was sort of a high alert, I think, among people who watch the administration of this. And then, of course, the Republican National Convention happens and it becomes even more stark, this attitude of noncompliance with the Hatch Act among members of the White House. Exactly. And, you know, we live in a polarized political environment right now. So people had in their minds that, you know, Trump does things differently. He had already had somewhere around nine, 10 uh, appointees who, who had not been punished for violating the act. And then we come to the convention and... Acting Secretary Wolf, I present to you five candidates for naturalization representing five countries. 
we have his acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf, who was presiding over a naturalization ceremony, which is really what you would call an official duty. And you had this done, you know, in the White House. On behalf of everyone here today, I'd like to express my gratitude to you, Mr. President, for hosting this naturalization ceremony here at the White House. You also had Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in his official capacity in Israel, making a speech that was promoting the president's reelection. I'm speaking to you from beautiful Jerusalem, looking out over the old city. I have a big job as Susan's husband and Nick's dad. Susan and Nick are more safe and their freedoms more secure because President Trump has put his America first vision into action. Now, Pompeo was there in Israel. He was in the Middle East on a diplomatic mission. But for watchers of the Hatch Act, you know, that didn't matter. Then what you had was, you know, potentially dozens, if not hundreds, I think we don't know the number of employees who work in the White House, both career employees and political appointees who were engaged in, you know, setting up the convention, uh, which the whole thing was basically on the White House grounds, which again was another unprecedented activity. And so the question really is, were they in violation of the Hatch Act? And it seems like the attitude coming from the White House right now is very much one of, does anyone actually care about the Hatch Act? Chief of Staff Mark Meadows actually said, nobody outside of the Beltway really cares. Nobody outside the Washington Beltway really cares about this thing. They expect that Donald Trump is going to promote Republican values, and they would expect that Barack Obama, when he was office, that he would do the same for Democrats. And so, uh, listen, this is a lot of hoopla that's being made uh, about things, mainly because the convention has been so unbelievably successful. But my question is, is that true or is this law something that isn't really enforced anymore, is kind of on the books, but is kind of like a thing of the past that is just no longer part of what it is to be a federal employee today? I think it's absolutely not a thing of the past and very much a thing of the present because you have you know, dozens of federal employees who get investigated every year for Hatch Act violations, whether they are, you know, willful or whether they are just done, you know, because somebody slipped up or was ignorant of the law. My reporting showed that uh, just this year, the Office of Special Counsel disciplined a an employee at the Defense Logistics Agency, which is part of the, the Defense uh, Department, for showing his employees a PowerPoint presentation in which he said, vote Republican. And that employee, after an investigation, determined that he had severely violated the Hatch Act because this was, of course, on duty. He was suspended for 30 days. That's pretty serious. That's a lot of uh, pay to lose, 30 days worth of pay. Then there was a Department of Energy employee uh, who actually had to resign uh, this year because the employee was giving a tour to a congressional candidate in Washington state of a Department of Energy hazardous waste uh, facility, um, a private tour that the agency had actually declined to give the candidate who had asked. And this employee just gave the person a tour so that the person would be more conversant in the, in the issues. So the idea was that she was using her capacity as a federal employee to help a candidate for, for political office. And, and she was fired? 
Yeah, the employer's fired and then and then banned from even applying for a federal job for for three more years. So absolutely. So there are serious consequences for people. So then why is it that that many federal employees and particularly lower level federal employees face repercussions for violating the Hatch Act, but it doesn't seem like that happens for members of the White House or senior members of the administration? Right. So this is an interesting, what some might call a loophole in the law. So when you're a federal employee, a career civil servant, and you get caught, the special counsel's office works with your agency head or your supervisor to figure out what an acceptable punishment could be. And it's usually an agreement that is uh, negotiated. In the case of a political appointee, the Office of Special Counsel makes a finding, but they refer that to the White House. And it is up to the president to decide whether someone who's found to be in violation should get punished. And that could be, of course, a reprimand. It could be a warning letter. It could be a suspension. It could be a firing. Now, in this administration, Henry Kerner, the special counsel, has given the president more latitude because Kerner interpreted the law to mean that not just Senate-confirmed appointees were under the president's jurisdiction, but also any political appointee who was found to have violated the act was up to the president to decide on punishment for. And so that's what happened with Kellyanne. But but it seems like there's such an inherent conflict of interest there. If you're giving the president the latitude ultimately to decide who gets punished for violating the Hatch Act and who doesn't get punished, when in many cases, people who could be violating the Hatch Act are people who work directly for the president. You're right. And so I think a lot of people feel this is an element of the law that needs to be amended. The, the I think that this wasn't an issue until Trump came along because you know, you had a White House that was more interested in holding its appointees accountable. So, for example, under President Obama and under President George Bush, there were violators, but they were punished appropriately. So under Obama, just because that's most recent, it's worth explaining. You had former Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. She violated the Hatch Act when she gave a speech to a gay rights group in 2012 that ended up, she slipped up. She was promoting the president's reelection campaign. She got in trouble. She had flown to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. She had to reimburse uh, the White House, the Treasury immediately for her plane ticket and her hotel expenses there. She also was reprimanded. Uh, and the Office of Special Counsel did an investigation on the White House's recommendation because they took it seriously. And, and for that reason, we didn't need additional checks and balances that some have called for. And so if it is now the case that it seems like the Trump White House doesn't take these violations seriously, at least when they come from members of the White House, is there any other mechanism for trying to enforce this? Is there anything that Congress can do to uh, either reprimand or or have ramifications for the members of the White House who, who violate this? Congress would have to pass legislation 
I think maybe to change the law, but that would, that would be proactive. What you do have though, well, a few things. You have the possibility that the Office of Special Counsel itself will undertake an investigation of what happened at the convention. That's possible. And I'm sure that they are getting multiple complaints. Last week, Henry Kerner issued a press release, uh, right in the middle of the convention, uh, saying that they take this seriously, of course, but that they only respond to complaints. That may have been an invitation for people to file complaints. I don't know, but it, it they certainly may. Uh, we just don't know because they don't publicize their investigations. They may investigate this and that would be, I think, a, a further slap on the wrist. But of course, then, you know, the president would not have to take action as we've discussed. Hmm. So then do you think that there is a concern here that the fact that the Hatch Act has been somewhat sidelined by this White House, that it could have permanent effects on whether or not this is something that is taken seriously in the future or an expectation for high level members of the administration that they aren't supposed to be campaigning as part of their official duties? That's exactly it. What experts on the Hatch Act told me um, when I was interviewing them was they worry that, you know, the, the, the administration's decision to really flout the law. And as you said, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows essentially did just that, said, and eh, no one cares about it. It's really, it's just a paper tiger. Well, people told me that this wouldn't potentially could embolden many civil servants to say, look, the people in the White House don't care about this. Why should I care about it? And that's really a, a huge concern. And um, if Trump is reelected, I, I think we would expect to see to see more of the same. Now, Mr. Kerner, I believe that his term extends just to, to show his independence, extends beyond a four-year term of a president. So whether Trump wins or Joe Biden wins, Kerner will still be in office for a couple of more years, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens and how aggressively he takes he takes these potential violations. Lisa Ryan covers federal agencies for the Post. Earlier this month, Steve Bannon was cruising on a yacht off the coast of Connecticut when the Coast Guard pulled up, federal agents boarded, and took Steve Bannon into custody. This fiasco yesterday was to intimidate anybody that wants to talk about American sovereignty and wants to talk about uh, the wall. Uh, we're, we're never going to stop talking about that and fighting for it. He was charged in connection with this conspiracy case Federal prosecutors say he essentially defrauded a bunch of donors who thought they were donating money to build a private border wall down on, on the U.S. border with Mexico. Matt Zapatosky is a national security reporter, and he's been covering the case against Stephen Bannon, the former White House chief strategist. On Monday, a judge set a date for Bannon's criminal trial. And though Bannon has fallen out of the good graces of the president, it wasn't that long ago that he was at the center of Trump's orbit. Steve Bannon um, was on the president's campaign. He sort of um, was one of the president's more far-right advisors, but shaped some of the president's hardline views on a lot of subject. We were mocked and ridiculed, and, you know, the, what, what are you guys doing? This is a, a joke. In fact, our, the Sunday show, Tom, Tom Rose and Gary Bauer tell the story how they were laughing at me when I was saying, hey, 
this guy Trump is going to be this is going to be very serious. So it's uh, it's good to see that you're in the in the heat of combat now. Well, you know, I remember that well, and oftentimes with you, especially because I'd always mess up my hair when I put those big microphones <laughs> around. You know, you'd always say, oh, could you put them on. The president retained him in the White House, and he served this role. He was called the chief strategist. He was almost like a sort of second chief of staff, a very powerful player and a very close advisor to Trump. He did, however, have a falling out with Trump as the years passed. He sort of clashed with some of the more moderate people inside of Trump's orbit, especially some of the president's um, children or his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Um, and so then left the White House, but he's continued to exist in this kind of very conservative space. He has a podcast. He still talks with other people in this world. War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Welcome back to War Room. We got Even though he's not in the White House and the status of his relationship with Trump is pretty unclear right now. Trump says he hasn't talked to him in quite a while. He was a very influential figure, you know, both in Trump's campaign in, in getting him elected president and then once Trump was in the White House. So then after Steve Bannon was pushed out of the White House, and even though he's continuing to make himself kind of a, a known presence and having a podcast. I got so much compliments yesterday on my hair and my uh, and, 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 and the tan. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to lose the weight. I think I'm getting there. I'm not I'm not totally don't laugh fish. I'm not totally there yet. How did that develop into these uh, into what he is being accused of doing? Yeah, so in um, in December of 2018, um, this guy named Brian Colfage, who is like a another person in this world, a very conservative guy. He's actually a, a Air Force veteran who lost three of his limbs in um, in Iraq. He's commiserating with a fellow, you know, conservative activist. Uh, this is around the time the government is about to shut down over a dispute between Trump and Congress about the president's border wall. Um, and this guy brings up the idea, hey, what if we just raised money for the border wall, you know, that we could give to the government to build the border wall? In other words, solicit private donations. The way it's described to me is Brian Colfage is really upset, like, gosh, the government is going to shut down. Why won't Congress just give Trump the money he needs? But hey, we don't need them. Let's just raise it on our own. There are so many conservatives out there. Let's just ask them to give to a GoFundMe page. A couple months earlier, this activist that Brian Colfage is talking to had introduced him to Steve Bannon in a separate kind of conservative cause. This guy brings on Bannon to run this operation. So then Steve Bannon gets involved, and what does he do from there? Like, what is he actually in charge of? It sounds, the way prosecutors describe it, like he's in charge of the whole operation. He, you know, him and a business partner that he brought on kind of run things day to day. So this effort, you know, which sounds a little outlandish, like I'm just going to start a GoFundMe <laughs> to build the border wall, which, you know, is going to be a multi-billion dollar effort. But within the first week, this group raises like $17 million. Wow. Um, like it actually sort of takes off. So, and then Bannon is charged with running it, though they hit hiccups right away. You can't just give money to the government and say, hey, spend it on this. So the group learns this, even the 17 million they have, they can't just give it to the government and the government will promise to put it into 
the border wall. Um, GoFundMe kind of raises some concerns with them, particularly because at this point they haven't identified a nonprofit. You're, when you have a GoFundMe for a cause like this, the money is supposed to go to a nonprofit, but they haven't identified at this point one it will go to. Well, Steve Bannon, who kind of takes charge of this, ultimately creates one. They agree to kind of re-ask donors, hey, we can't give this money to the government, but we could just hire a private company ourselves to build the wall. How would you feel about that? And Bannon is, is running this whole thing. I have so many questions <laughs> every stage of this process. Um, and then what part in the in this process is the part where Bannon does something that is allegedly fraudulent. Yeah, well, here's where it kind of goes off the rails. The group is concerned. They have to essentially re-raise this money. They solicit, you know, $17 million in the first week. I think eventually they get up above 20. But it's all, GoFundMe has it. And GoFundMe is threatening to give it back to donors if they can't identify a nonprofit. Um, They do get this nonprofit, but they still tell, GoFundMe makes them essentially have donors opt in. So you've given the money, but now you're changing your purpose a little bit. You've got to re-opt in. To convince people to opt in, federal prosecutors say they tell donors Brian Colfage will not take a dime of this money. You know, he's not taking a salary. Bannon says publicly this is a volunteer effort. Well, and and that's basically making the case or or trying to make donors comfortable knowing, like, this is actually going to go to that purpose of building the wall. This isn't just, like, giving money over to these people who are going to pocket it. Correct. Yeah, it's it's trying to convince people, you know, 100% of your contribution is going to go to the wall. It's not going to go to make Brian Colfage rich or Steve Bannon rich. But prosecutors say, in fact, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that were raised did do that. Colfage, you know, took a salary. They routed this money through, you know, various other entities to disguise how it was getting to him. Um, Steve Bannon took hundreds of thousands of dollars. Two other guys who were involved did the same thing. And prosecutors say that's fraud because they had represented to donors that they were not going to do that. So the charges that are filed against Bannon now, how serious are they and what could the potential punishment be if he is found guilty? This is a very serious case. It's hard to know what a potential punishment could be at, at this stage. I'm, there's a statutory maximum that I'm sure is really high. It's a, it's a white-collar crime, though. Um, it, it's two charges, two conspiracy charges, federal charges. This was serious enough, I'll say it this way, that they went and pulled him off a yacht. This wasn't like a ticket, you know, hey, go come in and, and answer for these. This isn't a civil lawsuit. These are federal criminal charges that all resulted in his arrest. And has Bannon said anything publicly about these charges, and has he admitted to any of it? No, Bannon has bit back very hard. So the day after he was arrested, he had a court appearance. He got released with some bond conditions, and he came out and basically said, this is all a political effort uh, against people who want to build the wall. And yesterday, look, yesterday, what I said coming out of the courthouse, and I got to tell you, how did I miss turning to the TV cameras and going to the, the print cameras? Donald Trump would never make that mistake. He would. <laughs> automatically know to the, the, the TV cameras on one side. He made similar comments on his podcast the next day. I, I am not going to back down. This is a political hit job. Everybody knows I love a fight. You know, I was called Honey Badger for many years. You know, Honey Badger doesn't give. So, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in this for the fight. I'm going to continue to fight. This was to stop and intimidate people that want to talk about the wall. This is to stop and intimidate people 
that have President Trump's back on building the wall. He really has come out swinging. And, you know, we've, we've been trying to reach other people involved in the group. A lot of them are just sort of saying, I didn't know about any of this. I want to wait and see what happens. Uh, one woman who I talked to who was involved with the group told me last week she's a little bit skeptical of the charges. She claims that the representation they made to donors wasn't that Brian Colfage would never take a salary, but wouldn't take a salary until the first mile of the wall was built. Um, and they did actually end up building two small sections of wall. Um, oh, really? It, yeah, it was sort of far short of what they sometimes advertised. Um, we're talking about less than five miles in total by their account. Um, and there's been some questions raised about whether it's structurally viable, but this wasn't like this was whole cloth, you know, money went to Bannon. They, they did build some wall. I think it's so notable that so many of the people in Trump's orbit, especially from his his first campaign and from early on in the administration, that they are people who have been charged with crimes and in, in many cases have been convicted of crimes. And I think a lot of Americans look at that and say that these are people who have been uh, inordinately targeted by federal prosecutors, that Trump is so political, that his administration is so political, that they are, that these charges are being used as a form of of targeting him. But I also think that you could just make the case that the people around Trump don't seem to be that worried about following the law. So Brian Colfage, the guy who founded this We Build the Wall effort, has made that exact case. You know, we're being targeted because we're Trump supporters and the Justice Department has made a habit of doing that. I think another point that I would make on that, though, is that when Trump ran for office, he promised to surround himself with all the best people. He said he was going to drain the swamp. And now you have more than half a dozen of his top-level former campaign and administration advisors uh, be convicted um, or charged, in Bannon's case, of crimes. You know, you have his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, his deputy campaign manager, um, Rick Gates, his former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, Roger Stone, who's another close associate of his, George Papadopoulos, sort of lower-level campaign advisor. In a couple of these cases, of course, the allegations had to do with Trump or his campaign or, or cover-ups, allegedly, uh, for the benefit of Trump. But in Bannon's case and some of the others, these were just personal, you know, straight-up allegations of personal greed. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. 
and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now, one more thing. The actor Chadwick Boseman died on Friday of colon cancer. He was 43 years old. Bozeman made a career out of playing iconic Black legends on screen. Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Thurgood Marshall. But what he will probably be most remembered for is his role as King T'Challa, or better known as Black Panther. All of you are wrong! To turn your backs on the rest of the world! We let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right. No more. Black Panther was one of those movies where you remember where you were when you saw it. You remember who you saw it with, and you remember how it felt coming out of that theater, in awe and excited, but also with this incredible sense of pride, of seeing a Black superhero who wasn't a sidekick, but was instead a king, and seeing a world where Blackness is synonymous with power and ingenuity and prosperity— It was a superhero movie, but it was so much more. And so was Chadwick Boseman. Boseman was a graduate of Howard, which is kind of a kingdom of its own. And in 2018, shortly after the release of Black Panther, he gave the university's commencement speech. We wanted to play a little of that for you today. It is a great privilege, graduates, to address you on your day, a day marking one of the most important accomplishments of your life to date. This is a magical place, a place where the dynamics of positive and negative seem to exist in extremes. I remember walking across this yard on what seemed to be a random day, my head down, lost in my own world of issues, like many of you do daily. I'm almost at the center of the yard. I raised my head and Muhammad Ali was walking towards me. Time seemed to slow down as his eyes locked on mine and opened wide. He's raised his fist into a quintessential guard. I was game to play along with him, to act as if I was a worthy opponent. What an honor to be challenged by the GOAT the greatest of all time, for a brief moment. I walked away amused at him, amused at myself, amused at life for this moment that almost no one would ever believe. I walked away light, ready to take on the world. That is the magic of this place. Almost anything can happen here. Ain't you? One of the themes of Bozeman's commencement speech, and really one of the themes of his career, was about taking the more difficult route, battling against typecasting and the roles that people think you're supposed to play, and instead choosing the path of more resistance to take on the roles you know that you're destined to play. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. When I dare to challenge the system that would relegate us to victims and stereotypes with no clear historical backgrounds, no hopes or talents, when I questioned that method of portrayal, a different path opened up for me. The path to my destiny. 
when God has something for you, it doesn't matter who stands against it. God will move someone that's holding you back away from a door and put someone there who will open it for you. If it's meant for you, I don't know what your future is, but if you're willing to take the harder way, the more complicated one, the one with more failures at first than successes, the one that has ultimately proven to have more meaning, more victory, more glory, then you will not regret it. Now, this is your time. <laughs> Chadwick Boseman died from colon cancer at the age of 43. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.